Hi, I'm Jim Stroud, and this is my podcast brought to you in part by Proactive Talent, the most recognized and respected name in talent attraction and hiring services. changing right before our very eyes. The coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic has wreaked havoc on our way of life and threatens our future in ways we can immediately recognize. The number of people unemployed, the list of businesses closing, and the overall uncertainty being just a few. However, said calamity is exacting a higher toll on some more than others. An existing class divide is becoming even more pronounced and the repercussions of which will be felt in society in general will make an indelible mark on the workplace. How? Well, I think we will see a rise in classism and that will mean that companies will have to be even more vigilant in how they protect their employer brand. In this episode, I ramble on a bit about the post-coronavirus world of work in three parts. Part one, classism on the upswing. Part two, what happens when classism hits your workplace? Oh wait, it's already there. Part three, just how classist are you? Stay tuned, it all begins after this. Recruitment marketing, as compared to maybe employer branding, is all about getting your message and your story in front of the right audience. It's a lot to manage. And what Practive Talent does for our clients is we help centralize. So you have one partner, one vendor to help you manage all those relationships. And not only that, we help you track the effectiveness of every media dollar you spend on hiring so that you know in real time that you're getting the greatest ROI for your marketing investment to attract great talent into your company. We help our clients with recruitment marketing in a couple ways. One is in recruitment marketing strategy. And with that, we really take the time to help you build the right strategy. And then we get mutual approval on that strategy before you spend a single dime. The other way we do this is through our agency of record service. This is a partnership with you where we're able to reach out to publishers on your behalf to negotiate better pricing, to execute on media campaigns, uh, and really act as an extension of your team. Some of the benefits that our clients have seen working with Practive Talents Recruitment Marketing Services is an overall reduction of 30% cost per applicant. That's really significant. It's showing that we're able to leverage great technology, programmatic, and we're also flexible and scalable. We're platform agnostic. We're always gonna use whatever the greatest and latest technology is, whatever the best platforms are to help create efficiencies in your media purchasing so that you're always on the cutting edge. For more information on Proactive Talent, visit them online at proactivetalent.com or click the link in the podcast description. Part one, classism on the upswing. If you think about it, the coronavirus pandemic has rather quickly divided our world into two camps those who can work remotely and those who cannot. If you are in the camp of people who can work from home, then you are dealing with uh, delayed business plans, 
travel restrictions, uh, uh, isolation from extended family and friends, and as such, your social distancing game is pretty tight. You likely get paid time off, and if your job is not endangered, self-isolation is more or less an economic luxury for you. Indeed, Gallup found that 71% of the people making more than $180,000 a year can work from home during the pandemic, compared with just 41% of those making $24,000 annually. And of course, there is the, the added perk that you will likely not get sick. But what about those in the essential workforce? Listen to these quotes from The Atlantic. Um, they wrote an article recently called How the Coronavirus Could Create a New Working Class. Very interesting article. Here is a very interesting quote. few weeks have exposed just how much a person's risk of infection hinges on class. Though people of all incomes are at risk of being laid off, those who can work from home are at least less likely to get sick. The low-income workers who do still have jobs, meanwhile, are likely to be stuck in close quarters with other humans. For example, grocery store clerks face some of the greatest exposure to the coronavirus aside from healthcare workers. Essential businesses, grocery stores, pharmacies, are about the only places Americans are still permitted to go and their cashiers stand less than an arm's length from hundreds of people a day. A little bit further on in the article it reads, at the same time, it isn't as if grocery workers can simply stop coming to work. More self-checkouts could be used and more contact-free deliveries could be made, but Someone has to get the Cheerios off the truck and onto the shelves. We are, through this virus, seeing who the truly essential workers are. It's not the people who get paid to write tweets all day, but the people who keep the tweeters in chickpeas and Halo Talk. When I hear about the plight of essential workers, my heart always goes out to them because not only do they have to deal with health concerns for themselves, but they also worry about bringing home illnesses to their families. This is especially true with nurses. But you know what else I think about? I think about the negative effects the coronavirus is having on those who are unemployed, of which there are, at this point, over 20 million. The stress from not knowing how you are going to pay your bills can be unreal and debilitating. Yet there are other consequences to consider as well, such as drug and alcohol abuse. Listen to this report from uh, CBS New York. Stressed out by the coronavirus and drinking your woes away? <coughs> You're far from the only one. From liquor stores to wine distributors, bottles are flying off the shelves. We were selling to at least three times as many customers as we normally are, um, and their order sizes are bigger. Melissa Saunders, a wine importer, can hardly keep up with the demand. She believes it's because customers are looking for a source of comfort in these difficult times. It seems that people are taking that same hoarding mentality that they have with toilet paper with wine. Health officials are afraid the fear caused by the coronavirus pandemic will lead to a spike in the substance abuse epidemic. 
would be indeed ironic if we minimized transmission of coronavirus and forced everybody to self-isolate and the people who are most vulnerable wind up dying of overdoses or suicides. Another negative effect of the coronavirus, an increase in suicide. MSNBC reports. Steve, I saw a grim statistic yesterday that for every percentage point, I think uh, that unemployment goes up, the suicide rate also goes up a percentage point uh, in, in a said community. Um, a very grim reality uh, of how all of this is interconnected. A grim reality reflected in the jobs of the staff members and workers here at the Suicide Prevention Center who are seeing an incredible uptick in the number of calls related to COVID. At first, in February, they were having maybe around 20 calls or so. That number has increased exponentially. At the end of March, it was somewhere around 1,800 plus. And then one out of every five uh, demonstrated or, you know, had thoughts about suicide. And so they're dealing with an incredible number. More and more, the numbers are reflecting a change in how society is reflecting this, uh, dealing with the COVID crisis. At first, it was calls about safety, about public health and infecting their loved ones and neighbors and co-workers. And now it's moved into really uh, worrying about, you know, their jobs at home, worrying about paying rent, uh, worrying about, uh, you know, being solvent as far as their business. And as these calls are continuing, so too are the workers' fears who are on the other end of the line. Uh, a lot of the staff members here, a lot of the people who are answering the calls are volunteers who have actually lost their day jobs. So they're experiencing this as well. Uh, like nurses and doctors, these are frontline workers. They have to staff and maintain this hotline 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Like nurses and doctors, they are dealing with people that are sick, if not at sometimes very close to death. And another mental health issue related to the coronavirus pandemic, one I had not considered before, is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Listen to this quote from the CNBC article, could you get PTSD from your pandemic experience, the long-term mental health effects of coronavirus? SARS outbreak in 2003, both healthcare workers and people who were self-quarantined exhibited symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. The COVID-19 pandemic could have a similar effect, according to experts. Even if you aren't clinically diagnosed with PTSD, you may have a strong emotional reaction to the trauma of COVID-19 that can last long after an incident. When we think about traumatic events, it's not just about what the event is. It's really your interpretation and what the event causes for you. Luana Marquez, clinical psychologist and associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and president of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, tells CNBC Naked. For example, healthcare workers providing frontline services as well as people who have lost loved ones or jobs due to the disease may be at greater risk for developing long-term difficulties. 
those who struggle with other mental health conditions such as anxiety or depression or who have a prior history of trauma may be at increased risk of more ongoing distress. When the pandemic resides and the world returns to work, employees will bring with them unresolved mental health issues, potential substance abuse, uh, PTSD, and the attitudes of some people that they have been inconvenienced long enough. You put all that together and you have a much different office than you had before. To put it simply, there will be people who just cannot deal with the changing work realities and mentally uh, bail out at work. Some of these people will be easy to identify, but a great many of them will not be. They will suffer in silence, a sort of quiet rage, I think. Up next, part two. What happens when classism hits your workplace? Oh, wait, it's already there. Do you love four-letter words? Who doesn't? And then you mix recruiting news and insights in with those four-letter words. I'm Cheese. And I'm Chad. And we are the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts. We, we out. out. This podcast is sponsored by Superpass, the go-to software for out-the-box content websites and mobile apps. With the Superpass platform, you can create your own branded website and native mobile apps to host your digital content, subscribers, and more. Do you have quality content that you want to share with the world in a beautiful and intuitive site? If so, then Superpass can provide the tech solution for you. Hold all your digital content in one place, your brand, your way. Check out Superpass.app. That's S-U-P-A-P-A-S-S dot app. Part two. What happens when classism hits your workplace? Oh, wait, it's already there. Dictionary.com defines classism this way. A biased or discriminatory attitude based on distinctions made between social or economic classes. I agree with that definition and can attest to the impact of classism on society in general as well as to the individual. The company Executive Diversity Services discussed why class is so important on their website. I quote from it now. Sometimes described as a hidden element that needs to be uncovered or made visible, a person's experience of class can impact his or her behavior, value systems, and perceptions of self and others. Here are some ways class can have an impact. Point one, affecting one's relationships and communications with others, for example, how we treat those around us. Point two, determining one's own self-concept confidence, and perception of ability to take on certain responsibilities, roles, or career goals. Point three, creating a sense of belonging or exclusion due to one's comfort with others or familiarity with professional or social environments. Point number four, creating a sense of exclusion from one's family or class of origin if one has changed social class through education, employment, or life partnerships. And point number five, 
influencing one's perception of money, power, status, organizational structure and policies, and management hierarchy. These impacts can be directly seen in a situation or can indirectly contribute to conflicts or misunderstandings and decreased performance if not identified, understood, and consciously dealt with. After reading that, I felt myself going down this rabbit hole of research on classism in the workplace and found a few interesting resources that were written years ago, but somehow felt timely as we gradually return to normal. I'll explain what I mean after I read uh, three more quotes. This one from the aforementioned company, Executive Diversity Services. issues can be found not only within academic institutions, but also in corporate settings in any workplace, and it can often go unacknowledged. Patrice D. Ingram, a scholar from Penn State, explains that within almost every organization there exists a hierarchy amongst employees that can create a class system in itself. This hierarchy can be based on a person's title, role, position, or function, and can cause some employees to feel like somebodies and others to feel like nobodies. Ingram rationalizes that although rank is necessary within organizations, rank-based mistreatment can result in lower levels of job satisfaction and performance, and it can also lead to lower levels of loyalty and commitment to the organization. The Business Times discuss class in their piece, Hidden Rules of Class Affect Workplace, and therein they said this. Managers and supervisors must be aware of the hidden rules of their employees and be willing to teach them rules that bolster their success within the organization. For example, do your employees understand the organization's unspoken rules about money? Those from poverty grew up with the notion that money was to be used, spent. Middle class norms suggest that money is to be budgeted and managed closely. Wealth suggests that one should conserve and invest money. What's right? Each is a viable use for money, but do your employees understand the views of your organization? The same can be asked of the view of higher education. Middle class norms suggest that education is critical to success in making money. But to those from poverty, education is more abstract, not a viable reality. For those from wealth, education is a necessary tradition for making and maintaining social connections. 
And one more quote, this one from USA on race. The motto, rank has its privileges, finds its roots in classism. Your level or rank in an organization can mean that you are subject to different rules or are offered different perks and advantages than those who are over you or under you on the organizational chart. On its face, levelism does not sound like a bad thing. You earn your way to the top of the organization and each level you attain bears even greater rewards. Unfortunately, if you are thought to be unworthy of promotion due to your appearance, use of language, your sensibilities, or your approach to work, you will never be eligible for the perks given to those at the top. Furthermore, if you find yourself stuck at the bottom of the organization because you don't have the budget for an impressive wardrobe or nice car, the perks you are offered often do not fit with your needs. Those quotes really resonated with me because I can easily imagine those same issues being intensified in the post-coronavirus era. For example, uh, prior to the pandemic, uh, a lot of Americans lived paycheck to paycheck. No doubt many of those returning to the workforce would have endured financial hardships that will impact their overall career. And, you know, as I think about it, I have a few more thoughts. Returning workers may be disregarded for promotion or recruitment because they do not look the part due to not having an impressive wardrobe or car, items that may have lost in the carnage caused by the coronavirus. Another point. Returning executives might now have a survivalist mentality where their notion is to survive and save for another day rather than take a risk on a new idea or process. Without an occasional gamble, there are no rewards of upward mobility, so their careers and the upward mobility of the company that they manage uh, could become stagnant. Another point, both labor and management could have psychological difficulty adjusting back to normal office operations, whereas some within the company uh, don't miss a beat and they get noticed and they get promoted. And the fate of those who have trouble adjusting back to normal or whatever the new normal is, they begin to feel like nobodies and become less invested in the success of the company. Sure, they do their job just enough to stay employed, but not much more than that. Uh, I should end there, but I'm going to go on. Let's add more to the story, uh, this time from the quiet worker still recovering from economic hardship. 
When it comes to job expenses, uh, they're expected probably to pay up front and get reimbursed later. All of a sudden, working at the company is something they can't afford, yet at the same time, they cannot afford to quit. So if that's your company policy, please change that. And what if there's a formal company gathering to celebrate coronavirus survival and people are expected to dress up? Evening gowns and tuxedos are expensive, even if you rent them. So some workers don't attend, which hurts their networking efforts inside the company and their careers are impacted. And when it comes to recruiting, and I'm going to quote Executive Diversity Services again here, do your recruitment strategies only focus on Ivy League or private educational institutions? Are graduates from particular universities preferred over those who attend community colleges? Are those who take part in certain extracurricular activities, i.e. philanthropic organizations, are they favored over those who had part-time jobs during school? End quote. And I'll, I'll add to those questions with this. Are you ignoring people whose principal experience over the past few months or year came from gig work? like un, uh, Gig work like, um, I'm thinking Uber and Instacart? It may be weird to ask that recruiting question now when just a few months ago, and it was just a few months ago, it was a candidate's market. Now that the pendulum has swung back to the employer, there was a danger of old classist hiring practices returning as well. And regarding that, I would caution companies to retain the practices pioneered and adopted when the unemployment rate was at a historic low. Back then, and again, it was only a few months ago, great emphasis was placed on the employee experience and how attractive your employer brand was. If you abandon that focus and return to the practice of taking job seekers for granted, then you will wound your employer brand and make it even more difficult to recruit the best talent. All that to say, there are a lot of people hurting for work that can benefit your company. People who might not be able to present themselves as well as they could have pre-corona. Be careful not to treat them as being in a lower class than you. Of course, you might not think that you do that. Up next, part three. Just how classist are you? Hey, what's the best platform out there to help automate initial phone screens? I found exactly one result. It's first screen through talent at www.firstscreenme.com. Great, but the calls need to be self-served by candidates when they're available. Correct. It's true talent at www.firstscreenme.com. And I need to be able to record my own voice. Uh, are my speakers broken? It's still true talent at firstscreenme.com. Right, but it needs to do reference checks too. You're starting to really irritate me. It's still true talent. And of course, I have to be able to listen to the original audio as well. Yes, yes. Still true talent. And it needs to be able to do high-level analysis on all my candidates as well. Okay, that's it. I can't take any more. Shutting down. With tens of thousands of completed calls and years of research to back it up, First Screen is the award-winning pre-qualification platform to quickly check candidates' soft and hard skills as well as references. See a demo of true talent on our website at www.firstscreenme.com today. Find your true talent with First Screen. Part 3. Just how classist are you? Okay, I'm going to ask a few questions and make a few comments. You can answer or, 
or not. Either way, I won't know your answers unless you reach out to me. So here we go. Just answer to yourself, yes or no, and see if you can manage to surprise yourself. All right, here we go. Um, do you know the names of people who serve you in your organization? I'm thinking the janitor, the security guard, the receptionist. If you don't know the names of people who serve you every working day, then you might be classist. If you greet them regularly and have had some conversations with them to the point that you know their children's names, well, then you might not be. Hmm. Another question. Do you speak to people who are higher than you in the organizational structure? Senior managers, the CEO, people like that. If not, why not? They are people just like you. If you somehow think that you are not good enough to talk to them, <laughs> you might be classist. See, it, it works both ways. And even those who have status and advantages can feel isolated if people treat them like they are untouchable. So uh, keep that in mind as well. Do you think that someone who doesn't eat organically or in a healthy way looking at you vegans, <laughs> means that they're lazy or don't care about their health? If so, you might be classist because all the organic food I've seen is expensive compared to other items loaded with preservatives. That's just how it is. Next time you're in a grocery store, compare the price of the so-called healthy organic stuff uh, next to what I call the normal food. <laughs> You'll see the difference in the prices yourself. Uh, you classes, you. Uh, <laughs> all right, one more question. Uh, do you think all homeless people are that way because they're lazy and or substance abusers? Well, if you said yes, then you might be classist because sometimes, just sometimes, things happen through no fault of our own. Coronavirus, for example. If the circumstances of this pandemic were to continue, that homeless situation could become you or I. If you love what you heard, hate what you heard, or don't know what you just heard, I want to know about it. You can leave a comment concerning this podcast on my website at www.jimstroud.com. In addition to finding source material and related information for this podcast episode, you'll find other goodies that I hope will make you smile. And if you have not already, please subscribe to my website. Your continued support keeps this podcast train chugging down the track. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.